The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Years now, uh, he's been journeying with me. You've probably seen him uh, through uh, leading worship, and you've seen him uh, maybe uh, in the hospitality team. He's been uh, loving you guys, doing some hosting, uh, and he's been sharing the word at the Victus Men for the last couple weeks. Have been uh, phenomenal, my brother. Uh, and so Craig is uh, at this point going through uh, the eldership process here at Life Point Church, and hopefully uh, by the end of that year, uh, you will have be officially a pastor here. And so uh, walk with him, uh, love on him, encourage him, uh, and, and begin to uh, help him because when you step into this call of ministry, how many of you know that the battle is thick? Uh, and so we want to pray for him and his family, uh, his wonderful wife, Kim, and, and all that God's doing in your life. And so uh, I'm going to pray over him, and then we're going to get into the word. Amen? Father God, I thank you for Craig. Thank you, God, that you are using this man as your vessel and your ambassador. God, I pray that the gospel will be ever-present on his lips and in his heart. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you give him a supernatural anointing and power this morning as he comes to deliver your word. That power is not in this man, but in your word. And I pray that he would deliver it in a way that would be honoring and glorifying to you. Give him a supernatural strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Craig, it's all you. Amen. All right. Good morning, LifePoint. It's really good to see all of you here today. It's a joy and a privilege to be able to share in the word together with you. Um, I've often felt like uh, we go through so many things between Monday and Saturday that to have the opportunity to to be washed over in the word of the Lord, to sing, to worship, to praise God together, to take communion, um, and just to be filled with the joy of the Lord on Sundays is our privilege and our joy. So um, I'm praying this morning that through the preaching of the scriptures and through um, the proclamation of God's word, um, that all of us will be blessed and, and, and get power and anointing and blessing to move through the next week, um, fighting against the enemy, loving the Lord and loving on one another. Let's pray that the Lord will meet us today. Father, it is in Jesus' name that we pray and we come to you, uh, thanking you and praising you, Lord, for the privilege and the honor to be in your house. Lord, I pray that you would speak to me today, Lord. Speak to me by your spirit. I want your people to be edified. I want you to be glorified. Uh, Lord, any words that, I'm, that might be said today that isn't for your people, I pray that you strike those words and the words that are for your people. Let them sink deep down into their hearts so that they might be changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. Help us today, Lord. You are Lord. We are your servants, Lord. So meet us in the word today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, so... So we have come to Acts chapter 22 in our study, in our journey through the book of Acts. Um, And so today we're going to read uh, Acts chapter 22 in its entirety. And I wanted to ask if if you are able and you are willing, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Amen. Acts chapter 22, in its entirety, the word of the Lord reads like this. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. 
brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, that's beating, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately and the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. This concludes our reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, what I wanted to do first was give a little backdrop of where we are and kind of situate us in the context that we find the Apostle Paul in at this point in his life and ministry. The scene that we have in the text of Scripture before us today immediately follows the seizure and arrest of Paul in chapter 21 when he was in the temple. You remember from last week in our study that Paul was actually dragged out of the temple 
by the mob and was at the risk of being beaten to death until the soldiers and the centurions stepped in and arrested him at the order of the tribune. Now, as Paul is being taken into the barracks, he, he makes what I consider a, an unusual request. He, he asks the tribune, can I speak to the people? That's, that's an interesting request. I mean, you just got mobbed and beaten by a group of people, and now you want to go talk to them? As if that weren't strange enough, the tribune realizes that Paul has spoken to him in the Greek language. Now there is an identity confusion because the tribune believes that Paul is this Egyptian dissenter who led a group of 4,000 assassins into the desert. Paul immediately says to him, listen, that's not me. I'm not that guy. He says to him, I am a Jew. And now, family, this is significant, and it's a, it's a good segue into the first aspect of Paul's speech to the peace people. And the first aspect is our Christ-centered testimonial identifies where we are. Our Christ-centered testimonial identifies where we are. Paul is about to make a defense to the crowd. Look at verses 3 to 5 of our text. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Church, make no mistake about this. Paul was what we would consider in the streets an OG. If you don't know what an OG, an OG is an original gangster. Paul, no matter who you were, if he knew you were following Jesus Christ, he was showing up at your house, he was going to take you, and he was going to inflict terror against you. Paul was known in the streets, and Paul would be like, Keep my name out your mouth if you don't want to be terrorized. This is who Paul was. Now listen, you know, being from the area that I'm from, it, it's one thing to, to have a, a gang member not like you. It's one thing to have somebody, you know, who, who, who just doesn't, doesn't agree. You know, I just, I don't like that person. Somebody want to pick a fight with you, right? We've all kind of had that situation. But what about a gang member who doesn't like you and he gets permission from the city councilman, the mayor, the governor, and the congressman to beat you and put you in jail? This is the type of authority that Paul had to administer against believers. Now listen, as Paul makes his defense to the, to the crowd, it's an interesting way that he starts. Um, you know, if, if you happen to find yourself on trial for, say, I, I don't know, murder, um, then I don't think the first thing you would say to the jury and the judge is, hey, hey guys, I know I'm on trial for murder, but I used to get contracted to kill people. I just want you to know that. Just want you to understand that, right? I, 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 I know that I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for my life here, um, but I want you to know a little bit about my history. I mean, even if you did it, that's not what you lead with, right? 
But, but, but see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This, this is the first defense speech of three defense speeches that Paul gives. And each time he outlines his past and talks about his testimony, it doesn't appear at all that he's even seeking for release or seeking to be freed. And that's what's interesting about when the Apostle Paul encounters anyone. More than anything, it seems like the most important thing to him is to proclaim the influence of Jesus Christ on the way and the trajectory that his life is going. You know, church, sometimes I wonder that the example that the Apostle Paul is giving here in Scripture is to highlight and bring uh, to, to, to attention his former life of sin as a defense of what he's been called to. If this is the case, then what is it that causes us to be afraid to testify about our former life of sin and what God has called us to? Beloved, in this portion of Paul's testimony, you don't see embarrassment about being identified with, with those who are participating in the works of darkness at one time. You don't see a protection of reputation by leaving out some aspects of his brokenness. You don't even see an appeal to the crowd for sympathy or leniency in an attempt to get a lesser sentence because, you know, after all, we, we all make a mistake from time to time. What you do see is an admitting that there is a blindness, a pridefulness, a recklessness, a carelessness, a rebellion, and an enmity toward God and a need to be delivered from the bondage of Satan into the freedom of Jesus Christ. I want to parenthetically say something to you. I, I, I know that we live in a world uh, that, that when they find out you do something wrong, they cancel you. I get it. I, I, I understand this. But I want to encourage you, people of God, here at LifePoint, don't be afraid to share the brokenness of where God has brought you from. There is somebody that needs to hear and understand where you were and then where you are so they can be encouraged about where they can go. So I want to encourage you, share. The part of your testimony and defense is to share where you were. And this is what Paul did, does. He shares a defense testimony about where he was. The next thing he does is our Christ-centered defense testimony identifies who called us. Who called us? The next section of Paul's narrative deals with the actual person who has called him. This is the point in Paul's defense speech where he recounts the narrative of his conversion experience. As he reflects on this, it becomes pretty clear that Paul is being called by none other than Jesus Christ himself. Consider verses 6 through 8 of our passage. He says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. Listen to me. Jesus says to Paul, who was formerly called Saul, that when he is harassing, terrorizing, hurting, imprisoning, and recommending the slaughter of Christ's followers, that he is doing this to Jesus the Lord of glory himself. I'll say that one more time. When he is harassing, terrorizing, hurting, imprisoning, and recommending the slaughter of people who follow Christ, he's doing that to Jesus himself. And this is what he's telling Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Listen, listen, one side of the coin. One side of the coin, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, not a believer, not a subscriber to what this passage calls the way, 
then whether you know it or not, family, whether you believe it or not, friend, whether you're intentional about it or not, you are an enemy of God. I'm going to repeat that. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, not a believer, not someone who subscribes to the way of Jesus Christ, then whether you mean it or not, whether you intend for this to be the case or not, you are an enemy of God. It pains me to say that, but I have to tell you the truth because it's in the Bible. Listen, you don't have to have a similar past as Paul had before he was converted to the Lord to be considered an enemy of God. Hear me very well. Hear me well, beloved. Uh, make no mistake about it. If you're not walking with Jesus for the purposes and fulfillment of his kingdom in this world, then you are fighting against him. You could be actively fighting against him like Paul, or you could be passively fighting against him, just sort of in this sort of laissez-faire, apathetic, careless, I don't give a flip, what will be, will be. Either way, you are an enemy of God if you don't believe him and trust in Jesus Christ for direction, instruction, salvation, comfort, peace, and wisdom for all of eternity. If, if you're not leaning on Jesus, you're leaning on yourself, and you're God's enemy. We don't like that phrase, do we? A couple of things we don't like in this culture. We don't like enemy. We don't like judgment. We don't like words like wrath. That's so old-fashioned. God doesn't really want me to live holy, does he? Hmm. Let's come back to that one. Listen to what the word of God says about unbelievers in this sense. John 8, 44 says, your father is the devil, and we know he's the enemy of God. James 4, 4 says, you are in friendship with the world, and therefore anybody who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Romans 5.10 says, before we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, we were enemies. Ephesians 2.2 says, we were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which made us an enemy to God and his purposes. To everyone who is not under the covering of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, let me say this. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church, pay your tithes and offering, give the church programs, serve on the committee, feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, Advocate for the poor, never miss a church service, sing in public, pray in public, preach in the church, cast out devils, visit the sick, visit jails, visit the elderly, and even leave all of your fortune to missions and world evangelism. God will require nothing less than full, complete trust, reliance, dependence, belief, hope, and rest in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world the only forgiver of sins, the cleanser from unrighteousness, and the absolute sovereign ruler and creator of the world. This is what it means to be on the side of Christ and not his enemy. I would encourage you to examine your hearts this morning. Because if you ever need a defense, you need to be on the right side. You need to be on God's side. So our testimonial uh, declares that. Here's the other side of the coin. I talked about one side of the coin. Here's the other side of the coin. For some reason, and I don't know if it's because we, we haven't read or believed the witness of Scripture, or we as believers just, just may not be willing to receive it, but if you're on the side of the coin this morning where you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have accepted him, you've received him, he's Lord of your life, master and king, hmm, y'all might get me for this later, but I'm going to tell you, you will suffer much persecution, trials, temptations in your walk with Christ. Church, it's an absolute shame 
that there are those who profess to be preachers of righteousness in our day who lead you to believe that when you follow Jesus, you get riches, money, homes, lavish living, opulence, clothes, bling, resources. Just, just follow Jesus and you can coast, have an easy life. God does promise in many places of the Bible that he will provide everything that we need. Indeed, Philippians 4.19 does read, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But the point is in the text. Every need, not every want. Every need, not every want. And to be sure, this is a message of encouragement to a church from this same Paul who was in prison at the time he was writing to the church. Now, Paul didn't want to be in jail. But Paul knew that there wasn't a Bentley waiting for him upon his release. This is not why he's writing this scripture. He's saying that when you get to a point of need, God will provide. Listen, just as surely as God has promised provision of your needs in this life, he has also promised that persecution, suffering, trials, and temptations accompanies the life of every believer who follows Jesus. Those who preach prosperity and riches to Christians often speak about what they consider is money and wealth promised in the Bible. But what about the other promises in the Bible that will, will suffer much persecution? Why not preach the whole thing? Give the whole story. What about passages like 1 Peter 5 and 10? After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Philippians 1, 29, for it has been granted to you, granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, but not just there, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I know many of us would like to rip those parts out of our Bible, but suffering is part of the Christian life, and Paul understands this. That's why he's willing to go back into the crowd and tell his testimony and speak the words of life to people who we know needed the words of life. Let's do that. Brothers and sisters, as the Apostle Paul is making his defense to the people, I have no doubt that he is now a man who understands both sides of this coin. He now knows what it means to be one who is persecuting believers, who's an enemy of God. And now he knows the side of one who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and will now experience suffering for the testimony of what Christ has done in him. The mention of the light that's shown in Paul's face is an interesting paradox that shows the fact that Paul is, listen, Paul is seeing the light of the true gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. His natural vision is lost. He's seeing Christ, hear me, but his natural, his natural vision is lost. It's interesting that if, if you put all three of those accounts together, Paul's conversion experience, you'll notice that the men who were traveling with him saw the light, but they saw no one. They heard the voice 
but they didn't understand or comprehend what the voice was saying. This is no doubt the motivation behind Paul's later writing of the letter to Corinthian church where he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull. Hear me, hear me, church. But to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the glory which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Be warned. Family, be warned. You can be in the midst of the things of God. You could be singing, praying, living your life, thinking that you are serving Jesus Christ. You could be preaching, and, and, and you could be giving. You could be on mission. You could be doing all of these things, but you could be blind to the truth of the gospel as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. Hear the warning. There is a blindness over the eyes of people so that they may not see Jesus in all of his fullness and his glory. Do not be in that place. Do not find yourself in church doing churchy things, but your heart is not connected to Jesus. I beg of you, church, Find your way to the Lord. Make sure you examine your heart and see that you be in Christ, not just in church, not just in some good mission, not just in some sort of social movement. You don't need that to tell you who you are. God identifies who you are. Your father is in heaven and he owns everything and he knows where you are and your testimony, your testimony should be about where Jesus has brought you and where he has you now. Hear my plea. Hear my plea. Let's, let's, let's imbibe this sobering message. Lastly, our christ in a defense testimony identifies who we're called to. Who we're called to. Finally, church, Paul outlines in his testimony the mission of the gospel to which he has been called. Verses 12 through 21 communicate the manner in which God chose to give instructions to Paul about what his calling was to. Look with me at those verses quickly. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And, sat that, and at, at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I am prison, beat those who believed in you. 
When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments, those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Interesting note. We didn't talk about this much previously, but I'll mention it now. At the beginning of Paul's speech, he says, brothers and fathers. What does that remind you of? Remember in Acts chapter 7? Remember Eric preached Acts chapter 7? What's the first thing that Stephen says when he starts the message that's going to result in his death? He says, brothers and fathers. Same phrase. Same phrase that Paul utters when he starts his speech, knowing that it will eventually result in his persecution. Brothers, fathers. Do you think Paul had in his mind what happened when Stephen was persecuted? Do you think Paul is thinking, man, this is an opportunity for me to now serve the body of Christ in my testimony? And in his mind, he's thinking, I know how it now feels to address a crowd of people who want to kill you and who aren't interested in what you have to say. Paul was blind when he stood by and approved Stephen's death. But now he can see. Ananias tells Paul to receive his sight. This is part of his testimony. He says, receive your sight. In the Greek phrase, that means to look up or to see again. What you saw before, you're not seeing. Now that you've been converted, now that the Lord has done this miracle in your life, look up and see again. When God converts you, when he changes and transforms you by regeneration, you don't see anything the same way. Look at the three things that Ananias tells Paul he's called to. He says in verse 14 that the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. All of these things are necessary for what's going to happen in 15, which is you're going to be a witness. I know some of y'all don't like it. Some of y'all don't like to talk to people. Some of y'all don't even like to see people. But let me assure you, God has called you to be a witness. We don't like that. Let me tell you. Quick story, one story. My wife and I used to be a part of a ministry who believed that sharing the gospel meant knocking on strangers' doors. It's true. It's true. We would get up on Saturday mornings, and we would go knock on people's doors. And When they opened it, we'd say, I'm so-and-so, I'm from such-and-such church, and we would hand them we would hand them a, like a flyer or something like that. Hey, no. <laughs> I remember I was going out one Saturday, and I, I said to my beautiful, lovely wife who's sitting right there, I said, you want to come out with me and go canvassing? And she's like, nobody's closing the door in my face today. <laughs> I'm not going. <laughs> you can go, but I'm not going. Listen, but as believers, we are called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, I, I know that there's some of you who, who, don't, who don't feel like you're, you're a public speaker, who you don't feel like you're, uh, you have the courage or, or a boldness to, to, to say things. Let me encourage you. What you're saying is not about you. You're not talking about your life, as great as it may be. You're talking about the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and seating at the right hand of the Father, of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who can redeem anybody out of anything, no matter where they find themselves. That's who you're talking about when you testify. I know you might want it to be about yourself. 
Hear me. I want you to go home with this phrase. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. This is the pattern of what we're called to. The God we serve calls us to know the will of the Lord by his word. He calls us to see Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as the Holy Spirit reveals him to us. And then he calls us to hear his voice through the faithful preaching and proclamation of the word every time we gather. That's what we're called to. What for? What purpose? You, the Christian, have a calling. You have within you, by the Spirit of God, because of the work of Christ, by the will of the Father, life to give to people. You got life in you. Healing words to give to people. Encouraging words to give to people. You got the gospel to give to people. You got the good news that you ain't got to walk the way you've been walking. You don't have to serve the person you've been serving. There is another way. It is the way that leads to life. Family, we are not called to simply sit and enjoy the goodness of the gospel to us only, but we are, we are to grieve the lost. We are not called to simply partake in the blessings of the gospel and how our needs are provided for, but we're called to give. And we are not simply called to sit and continue to hear the gospel and become full of, of the word of the Lord ourselves with no action. We're called to go. We're called to grieve, give, and go. If you don't go, you should be grieving and giving. If you're not giving, you should be grieving and going. If you're not in a place where you can give and go, pray, grieve for the lost. Beg Jesus to bring them into the kingdom. Paul's defense is his testimony about how Christ delivered him from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian and preaching righteousness to the nations. You'll note in the remaining verses that the crowd is not very pleased with Paul's defense. They actually shut him down at the very mention of him ministering to the Gentiles. The irony of this is that the Roman soldiers who bound Paul were Gentiles. Their reaction of shouting and throwing their garments and shaking the dust off of them proves their disgust at the reality that God would call anyone who is not like them from their clan, their tribe, their nation, their culture. In fact, throwing dust was a cultural indication in that time that something blasphemous was being said. How dare you say that God could save anybody else but the Jew? Family, we must be careful that we do not mock the call of God to bring people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every language, every creed, and every culture to enjoy the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God, the joy of fellowship and citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. That's what's going to be present at the Supper of the Lamb. Every tribe, every nation, every culture, every creed, all y'all going to be on your face crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and which is to come. Can you imagine that scene on your face, casting down your crown before the Lord, like the 24 elders did, 
and saying, all I ever had, all I have, and all I will have is Christ. That's it. That's all I got. What else are you going to give to Jesus when you stand before him? You, 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 you don't have anything to give the one who has everything. We used to sing a song, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let that reverberate in your heart and in your mind. Paul escapes this flogging that was intended for him by the soldiers because they realized that they were about to whip and beat a Roman citizen. But beloved, believe me, your testimony about Christ may lead you to places where you will not be saved from persecution trial, ridicule, suffering, or even death. My question to you, LifePoint, is when that comes our way, when it befalls the church in the West, the American church, suffering, persecution, trial, what will be our defense? What will we lean on in those moments? Will we lean on ourselves? Or will it be the testimony of Jesus Christ? Let me close with this as the band comes. If you follow the news at all, you, you're probably aware that recently two men in two different states charged for violent crimes attended to represent themselves in court in lieu of an attorney. In one case in Tampa, the man was accused of kidnapping, raping, and attempting to murder his ex-wife. Another man in Wisconsin drove his vehicle through a Christmas parade killing six people and injuring 60 other people. One of these men was very eloquent, had good questions for the judge, maintained respectability in the courtroom, and actually presented a cogent argument for his defense. The other man was just the opposite, removing his clothing during the trial, interrupting judicial proceedings, and showing absolutely no remorse at the sorrow, pain, and grief of the families of the victim. Both were guilty of these crimes. Both were convicted. Both were sentenced to life in prison. Family, you, me, all of us stand guilty before a holy and righteous judge. Every single person under the sound of my voice, including me, deserves nothing but eternal punishment and the flames of hell for all of eternity. If it is a fool's errand to represent yourself in an earthly trial, how much more of a folly is it to attempt to represent yourself and make a defense to a holy and righteous God for your sin? Just like the two men I mentioned, we need an advocate. Here's the good news. Those of us who have received Jesus Christ and have been accepted into his family as his children, he is our advocate, and he remains that forever. As those who follow Christ, we still sin, but when we do, 1 John 1 and 9 says that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This advocacy that Christ gives us is not just to prevent us from being punished by the righteous judge. It's also to protect us and defend us from the attacks of the crowd. 
It's a defense for those who would do us harm because of our testimony about Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, understand that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and trust in Christ. An earthly advocate can only plead the evidence that he finds in some subjective witness or testimony. But because of Jesus Christ, our heavenly advocate pleads our case on the basis of his own satisfaction of the demands of justice. You are guilty. But Jesus Christ is the only one who can plead your case, declare you not guilty, and then take the punishment that you deserve. He's the only one who can be on the bench, take off his robe, die for you, rise for you, and then declare you not guilty. It ain't nobody else who can do that for you. Nobody. You need an advocate. And Jesus is able to do that because of his perfect life, the blood that he shed on Calvary's cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, and his seating at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you and I. Why not put your full faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ today for your defense? He is your only defense, and he can do it very well. He can do it very well. We're going to sing today. We're going to worship today. But I want you to really, really wrestle with Christ. If you do not know him, make him your defense today. And if you know him, understand that your testimony your story is vital to somebody who may be looking for him. Talk about what he's done. Talk about who he is. Paul referred to what God had done in him, through him, and for him. He wasn't afraid to talk about his past and how God had delivered him from the power of darkness to marvelous light. Family, let's do this. Let's testify to the wonderful works of Jesus. You're called to do it. You're commissioned to do it. Listen, you have what it takes to do it, even though you might not think so. Listen, we preach the gospel with words, and, and we preach the gospel with lives. Preach the gospel day in and day out. And let Christ be your ultimate defense. Let's pray. Lord, we're here today, humble before you, with nothing else to bring. Nothing in our hands we bring, but only to your cross we cling. Father, would you cause us to see you in a way that we have never seen you before? Would you cause us to trust you in a way that we have never trusted you before? Would you cause this text, these verses, this message to sink so deeply in our hearts that we have the courage, the power, and the wisdom, and the understanding, and the wherewithal to, to 
to proclaim the fame of your name regardless of where we go. Knowing that the same way you delivered us is the same way you desire to deliver the nations. Help us to grieve. Help us to give. Help us to go. Let us not be so wrapped up in our own circumstances that we do not see the ultimate plan of the kingdom of God to restore, to reconcile, to bring those back to God who are lost, who cannot find their way. Lord, we believe you'll do it because you said you would do it in your word. And now, Lord, I pray for each and every individual here under the sound of my voice. Change hearts. Change minds. Give courage where there needs to be courage. Give humility where there needs to be humility. Give freedom where there is bondage. And give hope where there is hopelessness. Only you can do it, Lord. Draw people to yourself today and defend us for the cause of Christ. We pray it in the name that is above every name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love you, family.